So good to be with you. Um, we've just come from the global new frontiers in Cyprus, um, where you can be very proud of a young Andrew McConnick. Um, I think I, I said in the previous service, um, I'm, I get to kind of dip in and out of different um, spheres and things and hear things. And I think going into Cyprus, the, uh, the global meeting, there were some anxieties about would everybody be united? And um, I think this is little rumors going around of, you know, niggles and things. Well, I've got to say Andy brought a fantastic word on the first day. And we left Cyprus as a family on mission to the nations in unity, the whole uh, right across the board. So, yeah, you've got to take care of this man. He's got um, some precious gold there. Um, yeah, I, I, I just want to thank God for this church, really. Um, just being here over the weekend has really blessed us. Mm. And... Um, it's lovely to come, get, you know, come and experience different churches, but this is a wonderful family church. This is a wonderful place. And um, as we were worshipping, I just felt like God remind me that um, there's one church, one Lord, one spirit, one calling, one Holy Spirit that works through us and... Um, as we were worshipping, I was very aware of um, the diversity here. And it was like God saying that he was receiving um, different sacrifices of praise. As, as you um, were worshipping, I just felt God saying that each person has their own story and their own life and their own sacrifice and their own suffering and their own joy. And as you come in and you push through and you worship him, he's receiving different offerings from each one of us, but that together we're one body. Um, so it was a, just a beautiful image that I felt like God gave me of your church. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's brilliant. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk on identity and I'm going to share stories about people I've come across um, throughout the world. Um, and then Liz is going to come back and share one of those stories because I'm going to make sure on that. Um, but I just want to read a bit from about our DNA and what we do. Uh, some of you know, some may not know, that um, we left UK in 1998 to go to China um, and work with the Chinese government to serve them and encourage them to move from institutional-based care into family-based care because we believe passionately that it's on God's agenda. The family is what he created for children. And so I'm going to read through some, some bits. This is some stuff I um, put together when I was writing in the book, As Many as the Stars. Um, there's also a documentary now called uh, Children of Shanghai, which follows five of the children we placed 20 years ago and remarkable outcomes that God has transformed their lives. Um, but... Let's just start with God made the family for children. Many child psychologists believe that mental health and behavior problems could be attributed to early childhood. Developmental psychologist John Bowlby's theory of attachment suggests that children come into the world 
biologically pre-programmed to form attachment with others because this will help them survive. His, his thought was, where there is maternal deprivation, children often develop mental and physical disabilities. However, what Bowlby and many others didn't know is how that happened. However, we do. We know from Psalm 139 that God knitted us together in our mother's womb. He fearfully and wonderfully made us. The maternal and paternal roles in child development are God-ordained. We are therefore, we, sorry, we are all orphans. And, and God adopted us into his family. And I just want to go on why God loves the orphan. And I had to teach this into the Chinese church because it was a blind spot. They missed it. And I think when you're passionate uh, evangelistically in China, it's something that can, maybe it took a big foreign Englishman to show them. Children, the smallest and weakest and the most vulnerable, are often those that pay the greatest price for family disruption. Although we often miss their hardship, God does not. He is passionate for the orphan. God made the family for children to grow up and experience family life. His people, the church, are to defend them in their distress. Our compassion comes from really knowing our Father, who passionately cares for the orphan. We love orphans because we love God. If we didn't understand that theological aspect of loving orphans, our care would be commendable but ultimately worthless. The Christian understanding of orphan care begins with understanding the character of God. And I just go on to share, for years in China, I shared my heart with the house church leaders to care for the orphan. It was only when they saw the theological reasons to care for orphans that they were reduced to tears of compassion. So I think that's a good place to start. As I say, I tell lots of stories, and I've um, been on the road. we just come back from Cyprus. Before that, I was in Asia, and I met um, with my friend, Pastor Job, because um, I don't know if you know at the moment, he described to me is, and this seems really hard to digest, but Pastor Job told me in China today, it is the worst ever worst ever situation they've had for the church. The persecution is, and I've read, you know, Lilies Among Thorns and all those, 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 those books, and, and he's telling me this is the worst ever. Every church has been closed in China, and people are having to scatter. But he said, here's the good news, Rob. He said, we're on the wave of our third revival. Our church numbers have doubled. And, then, and I think that the, the authorities haven't really grasped hold of it. The more they persecute, the more the church grows. Um, I was with another pastor, and he was telling me that um, he'd recently been in prison. Um, and he took it humbly. And uh, he went into a prison. And believe me, prisons in, in Asia are not good places to be. And when he went in, um, he was told he was going to share a cell with a, another man. And when he told him the name, 
he realized this was one of the most violent criminals in that country. Uh, he'd um, <coughs> killed a few people and with a knife slashed someone's face and no one wanted to be in a prison cell with him. <coughs> but he realized he was going to have to spend some time with this man in a small cell together. I think in the early time, they avoided each other and they had pleasantries. They talked to each other, good morning, and he grunted. And, um, eventually, he realized when it came to visiting, this man never had a visitor. And so he said to him one day, he said, how come you never have anybody visit you? And he said, nobody wants to know me. I'm, I'm, you know, nobody wants anything to do with me. He said, do you have any family? He said, I have, I have a son and a daughter. He said to him, well, do you love them? He said, I would do anything for them, but they don't want to see me. They don't want to know me. He said, you'd do anything? He said, I would. I'd love to see my daughter, but I'm afraid that will never happen. So the pastor said, um, what about if you wrote a letter? He said, well, I can't read or write. He said, well, what about if I wrote you a letter? Well, what would I say? I don't know what to say. Said, Why don't you just say what, talk to me how you feel, like you've just been doing, and I'll write it down. And so this began, they started to write, he started to write letters about what this, this criminal felt about his family. And he wrote first to the daughter, and he wrote these letters. Letters went out and nothing came back. Weeks went by and months went by. And they kept writing and he kept expressing his feelings about his daughter and about his son. And eventually a letter came back. And his daughter agreed to visit him. And uh, you imagine the night before, you know, the pastor was preparing him. What am I going to say? He was nervous. Didn't know what he was going to say. What am I going to say to my daughter? You know, I'm going to blow it. It's, you know, she'll never come and see me again. <coughs> so he helped him and, and talked it through and just helped him think about what he might say. And he got ready for this big day and went, spent time with his daughter. And he came back and he said, pastor said to him, how did it go? And he said, brilliant. It's fantastic. It was like, you know, when we when she was a child. She's agreed to see me again. And so they would continue to write to the son, and the son eventually agrees to see him, and they both come. And uh, he's totally restored the re relationship. Pastor told me, he said, now I'm, obviously he's out of prison himself. He did 18 months for a crime he didn't commit. It was put on him because he was a Christian. He said, I live in, in, he showed me where he lived in the road, and he said, my friend lives next door to me with his son and his daughter. And he said, what I realized was God put me in prison so I could restore that relationship. That man's identity was broken, but he still had that passion and love for his daughter and his son. Isn't that amazing? That this pastor thinks that God put him there just to, Help that man. <coughs> um, 
Liz and I started our journey in uh, 1998, and as I say, we went to Shanghai. Um, Elizabeth often says I'm more Chinese than I am British, um, and the Chinese quite understand that I understand the way they think. Uh, for me, it was always about how we could serve them. Um, and so when I had the, the first opportunity to go to Shanghai, um, there were lots of people that were criticizing them, uh, wagging their fingers at them and telling them off. I was just enjoying the food. <laughs> the food was lovely. And, the, and, you know, they make quite good beer in, in, in it's called Qingdao beer. And it's, um, yeah, really quite nice. So, I, you know, what I didn't realize was in China, everything. We don't have boardrooms in China. We don't have meeting rooms. It's all done over food. It's relational-based. It's called guanxi. So if you build guanxi, you build relationship, you build business, you build work, you build ideas. And just sitting with them, eating and drinking and talking and sharing ideas. <coughs> I'll have a sip. Bit of a dry throat. Um, had this wonderful meeting. Now, the, the, the interesting thing is I had a couple of prophetic words on my life, and the first one was in the summer of that year. An Australian guy, uh, we were at Stonely Bible Week doing youth work, and um, an Australian guy came to me and he prayed, and he just said, I sense you're going to be in an earthquake, and when you're there, it's where God wants you to be. I thought, silly man, he doesn't realize we don't have earthquakes in England. <clears throat> you know, I remember having a drink with my um, can of Coke in the evening with my pastor and saying, you know, there's this crazy Australian. He's told me I'm going to be in an earthquake. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, we'd had this meeting in Shanghai, and my, a friend of mine who traveled with me to China, we went back to the hotel, and having had this wonderful meal with the Chinese, we... Chinese government, we then went into a wedding ceremony as we walked into uh, the hotel, and it was wonderful, you know. We got, in, we got immersed into this, and she came in a white dress and then a red dress, and then we gave speeches and prayers and blessings, and we became part of the wedding party. It was, it was really quite fun. Um, but we were quite tired, so when we went up to our room, and it was on the 28th floor or something, and um, I remember my friend reading a book. He said, are you shaking my bed? I said, certainly not. Um, I think I was watching some football match or something, which was quite difficult because it was in Chinese. And then we noticed the curtains moving. And we were like Laurel and Hardy, scratching our heads, thinking, you know, what is going on? We never experienced anything like it. So I went out onto the corridor to find... In China, you always had a little lady on the, each landing, and she kept a note of who was coming in and going out. And I thought, well, I'll go and find her and see if she knows what's going. Well, she'd gone. And so had everybody else. And as I stood in that door frame of our room, I, that Australian voice came back. Within this year, you'll be in an earthquake, and it's where God wants you to be. And it was 6.4 on a Richter scale. Everybody else had left. But it told me something that God wanted us in Shanghai. 
um, which I thought was quite remarkable. And then we moved and went on to Xi'an and to Beijing, and, and before you know it, I'm back in my office in, in uh, England, thinking, was I really on the, have you ever had that experience? Was I really on the Great Wall of China yesterday? Incredible. And the phone rings, and it's the Foreign Office in London. Um, we want to talk to you. Well, that, you get a bit worried when the Foreign Office want to talk to you. Um, but anyway, I traveled over and met with um, the Foreign Office, and the Chinese had contacted them and asked, um, would I go, would they sponsor me to be their consultant? Which we thought was rather amazing and crazy, really. Um, but the other thing about it is I had to go back, and I'd just been to China, and we didn't have much money. I've got six children. We were living in Guernsey. And um, then another phone call came. Mr. Branson, uh, Richard Branson of Virgin Atlantic, want, wanted to meet. So I went across to Holland Park in London, and we had a meeting with Richard Branson, and I told him about my passion for children and that I didn't think he was paying any attention whatsoever. He'd just been in the Bahamas or somewhere and he'd got a little, he broke his, he t told us great detail of how he broke his little finger windsurfing and uh, I was thinking, this is a waste of time, you know. Have you ever been in those sort of meetings and you walk away and think, oh well. And as I walk out the door, you'll, if you read the book, you'll get this and people call me this. He shouted, Roger! Roger, no, he's not Roger. Um, he said, let's do it. So as we were walking out, the, the British am ambassador said, well, that's amazing. And my friend said, no, that's God just provided his transport manager. <laughs> I met him a few times in, in uh, China. One time he came out to Shanghai and he put, a, he put a party on for the kids and literally flew in and flew out the next day. But in the evening, he had a little reception, and he invited me down, and I was waiting while he was partying and dancing with people and stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll go. And um, on the way, I thought I'd go to the toilet. And I was stood in the toilet, and behind me came, Roger! <laughs> anyway, it's amazing what God can do. So Shanghai was a huge success. And we moved 500 children out of the Shanghai orphanage into families. And we saw incredible transformation of children's lives. Just incredible. You know, when you go back to that creativity of God that made the family for children. And um, from there, we went to three cities in, in China and to Kunming in Yunnan province. If you ever get a chance to watch... On YouTube, there's a little um, short video called The Village. Um, we go there into the um, Lisu minority group. Um, and I remember going with Francis Chen. Um, I, there was an opportunity with um, a few years back. Francis Chen wanted to go to... Um, China to just really go quietly and listen about what's going on with the house church. And David Devonish came with me, and uh, 
That was an interesting meeting between Francis Chern and David Devonish. But by the end, they were like brothers. The first place we went was uh, Beijing, and we went into one of the big um, house churches in Beijing. And we sat at the back because Francis didn't want anybody to know that he was there, just wanted to see and listen. But word had got out there was a famous Christian pastor in the service. And at the end of the service, all these kids came running to the back. But the interesting thing is they ran past Francis and to me. And Francis was looking, thinking, you know, this is giving me the funny eye. Um, and they said, will you sign your book? I said, well, I had, at that time I hadn't written a book. And, and they said, yes, you have. I said, no, I haven't written a book. They said, you have, Purpose Driven Life. They thought I was, <laughs> they thought I was, I had a bit of a goatee beard then. They thought I was Rick Warren. <laughs> and then we went on to Shanghai and we met with some house churches there and we went to Wuhan, met some, and then we got to the village. And then Francis said, this is why God brought me here. These people are remarkable. In this village, they're all Christians. They've taken 120 disabled children and loved them like their own. Incredible. And, and Francis Chan said, you know, this is why God brought me here, to see this, see these people. He said, I've never heard them preach. I've never heard them worship. But I've seen how they live. And it's remarkable. Um, about halfway through uh, working in China, they decided that we should move to Beijing and roll out a national program. So this was an opportunity to change the whole of the China from institutional orphanage base into family-based care. And so we were based in Beijing. But then they also released that they were going to build new orphanages. They called it the Blue Sky Project. I, I mean, I was very disillusioned because we'd moved so far forward, taken so much ground for families and children. And I remember going to Chengdu and um, the knock-on effect of children going into families. I went to this village and this woman came out, and middle-aged woman, and hugged me and gave me a kiss, which is very unusual for Chinese. They're very quite re reserved. She said, thank you for transforming my family. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. We, we were, we're here for the children. She said, let me explain. We had our son, and he grew up, and he went to university. He said, then my husband started to drink and gamble. And we argued. And lots of Chinese live in courtyards. They live together with uncles and aunts and, and granny and granddad. They all live in a courtyard together. They all moved out. They got fed up with the arguments. All she had was her friends during the day to drink tea in Chengdu. And uh, he would gamble and drink. And then they had the opportunity for our scheme to, to take in. And what this mum always wanted was a little girl. She'd had her son, or one child, but she wanted to pass on all those handicrafts, the cooking, all the, the, the wonderful skills in China that, that, that mums have. 
And so she took little Lily in, beautiful five-year-old girl with pigtails, and she became her daughter. And things started to change. The dad stopped drinking and gambling. He would read and do education and homework every day. The uncles and aunts came back into the house. Granny and granddad, she said, we've just had the best Chinese New Year because we're family again. And it just shows you when you take out the heart of a family, how it breaks. But this Blue Sky project's taking off, so I'm thinking I better go down and see you know, one of these wonderful new orphanages. And I went down, and it was, it was remarkable. Look, beautiful building, kids were all dressed well, the food was lovely, education's good, young staff, and you're thinking, are we doing the right thing? Because we're placing children long-term into families in, in, in the villages and to the rural areas. Um, and we only want to do the best for the children. You know, we're here to advocate on behalf of children. So we went in the minibus with the name of the orphanage on the side into the village where I meet this tiny boy who I call Bamboo Boy. And he's about this big. And he had a bamboo stick and he wanted to fight me. He was David. He was swinging and, and really angry. And I understand, why, why, was he, why was he so angry with me? So I asked someone to translate his words because he, he spoke in a dialect. And this was his words, just literally translated. He said, you see that tree there? Yesterday I got to the top of the tree. I climbed the tree on my own. And all the village came out, and they all know my name, and they call me, come down. You know, they care about me. They love me. They didn't want me to fall. And they're all shouting me to come down from the tree. And this dog, he's my dog. He belongs to me, nobody else. It's my dog. And over there, across that field, that's my school. And every day I go to school, my dog comes with me. And you know what? My dog sits outside and waits for me until lunchtime and we come back into the village. He said, Auntie over there gives me apples every day. Uncle gives me broken biscuits from his shop. They all know my name. It's my dog. This village, everybody knows me. I have mother and father, uncles and aunties, brothers and sisters, and I'm not going back to that orphanage. You see, they th he thought they brought me in the orphanage minibus to grab him and take him back to the orphanage. But he had everything in that village. He had identity, community, strong love, nurture, attachment, everything he needed to grow healthy. He had his own dog. You can't have a dog in an orphanage. Uh, and it really hit me again. God made the family for children to grow up in. And it was a great example for me going forward to remember what our vision, what our calling is to help children and to, to advocate on behalf of the family. Recently, um, Liz and I met with some government people in Westminster here, and they wanted to know, 
could they learn anything from China? I said, well, what's your problem? And quite interestingly, they, they were cross-bench ministers or MPs, and they all seemed to know the problem, but they know, nobody had any idea how to reverse it. They said, we've got broken family in this nation, broken community, broken culture, and, and our economy is broken. And I said, that rings a bell with me because, you know, when I studied sociology, any nation in the world knows where you have strong family, it builds strong community, strong society, strong economy, and a healthy nation. So how do we get back there? Start with your family values. Get the family values back into this nation that made it what it is and went to the world. We taught the world. And now the world are moving, or certainly the places where I go, are very good at family values, and we seem to want to throw them out. So from Shanghai to Beijing, the message was getting out. People would travel five days to come and learn about how they develop family placement. And um, I always remember when I signed an agreement with the minister. The minister I worked for was a chap called Minister Yeming Fu. He was Chairman Mao's Russian translator. Um, a very, very influential guy. And he made a path for me to go through. I never knew why for a long time until China went for the Olympic Games. And they asked me if I would go with them. It, it was the, the, the decision was to be made in London. And I didn't know why I was going. I had no idea. Why were, uh, there was Deng Pufang, Dei Xiaoping's son. The mayor of Beijing, the mayor of Shanghai, Yaming Fu, the... the um, the previous prime minister. And I'm, so I, I thought I'd better talk to the embassy here because I think I'm going offside, you know. This could be dangerous, I'm going, you know. And so I spoke to the foreign office and uh, they said, no, no, go, go. If you need anything, just ring this number and we'll, we'll support you. Anyway, I get to London and of course, they win, trying to win. And so they're very happy and they decide they're going to have a party down in the east end of London. Chinese dinner and whatnot. And, um, and then I realized why I was there. They were taking a coach to the, to the east end of London. We were staying in, I think, the Hilton in Park Lane. And he said, Robert, Dung Pu Fong, who was pushed out of a thir third floor window in the culture of has a broken back, is in a wheelchair. Can you drive? I said, well, I can. So you're going to drive. We're going to hire a Mercedes car, and you're going to drive the car for Dung Pu Fong, the mayor of Beijing, and the mayor of Shanghai. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is big responsibility. You know, these guys are, <laughs> um, you know, massively important in China. And so it was a hot, I remember, a very hot day in May, and... I got in this Mercedes-Benz and this Deng Pufong and Mayor of Beijing and Mayor of Shanghai. And uh, the coach is about to go. I've got to follow the coach to the restaurant. I didn't know where the restaurant was. We didn't have DNA, um, what do you call it, GPS or on our, 
on our phones. I couldn't find the I couldn't find the handbrake. There's no handbrake in this car. There's no handbrake down here. Not one on the side. And they and they're saying, Go, go, you've got to follow that bus. So I start to drive down Park Lane with the handbrake on, and the smoke is all coming up, and they're laughing, thank goodness. And they're winding the windows down because all the smoke's coming off the brakes and it's making a noise. And I thought, eventually I saw when they first introduced the P button, you know, Hembra. I saw that, I thought, that was a chance. And I pushed this thing and we we all went flying forward. And they were laughing and thought it was hilarious. Well, when we got to the party, the joke was on me, you know, the handbrake Bob took us over the handbrake all the way to through Park Lane and... Uh, but it was wonderful because it built that relationship and, and, and it built that opportunity to talk and meet to them all. And then Yamingfu said, I want to have dinner with you tomorrow night. Remember, this is the guy that made the path. I didn't know why he did that. And in China, you know what? If you stick your head up sometimes, you get it chopped off. So you don't want to be pushing your head above the water. You want to be keeping quite low profile. Yamingfu dinner in London, tells his story. He said, this is the man that translated between Mao and Christoph and stopped uh, um, the possibility of a war. Um, this is the man that went on the Tiananmen Square and brought the, told the students to take him hostage because he knew the government was coming, uh, the, the, the tanks were coming. And, and we have this dinner and he tells me that his father was a Christian pastor and he's, he was the head of the YMCA in, in China. In 1920, the British YMCA funded him to go to Edinburgh University. Wow, you suddenly see God's picture, all the dots coming up, why he was opening the door for us because he, had father, had been opened by in 1920 and so he said do you think we can go back to Edinburgh University so here's my chance to ring the foreign office got that number um, Yeming Fu would like to go Sunday this was on a Sunday up to Edinburgh University um, to see if there's any record of his father because during the Cultural Revolution his father was put in prison as was he and his father died there. And you could see he was very passionate about his father. His father was, had been his hero. And so we took the train up to Edinburgh. And the dean came out on Sunday and opened up all the archives. And we found two photographs of his father. Remember, everything had been wiped clean in China. They burnt everything. They destroyed everything. And here was these precious photographs, one in Trafalgar Square and one in Paris. And man just wept and wept and wept. That identity that he had in Christ through his father had, had I actually asked him, when, when we got back to China, he was in hospital, he was ill. And I said to him, can I pray for you? And he stood up and put his hands over. I said, are you a Christian? I was really want to know, are you a Christian, Yemen fool? And he said, you've got to understand, President Bush wears his Christianity on his sleeve, I've had to guard my, in my heart, all my life. His memoirs are out now, and it talks about every day how they 
with his family. They would meet together and have breakfast and say the Lord's Prayer. It's just incredible that this man had such an impact on this nation. And he helped in making a way to bring family care, which I would say the Chinese could teach the rest of the world. They are remarkable in the way they do family. Um, and to restore that creativity of what God has brought to that nation. I'm going to tell one more story, and then Liz is going to come up and talk about amazing story about Joe. So we're starting to see some patterns of people. You've got the bamboo boy who found his identity in the village. There's Yaming Fu who had got his secretly hidden in his heart but made the influence through his life. Um, but I got the opportunity to go to North Korea and um, the North Korean government asked the Chinese government if I would go and spend some time there. And um, I was quite happy to do that. There's a funny story which I shared yesterday with the um, 18s to 30s. I won't share today. You can read it in the book if you want. It's quite a funny story about something I shouldn't have done. <laughs> I sponsored one of their... I sponsored their first ever Paralympic to London. Uh, if you want to hear the story, read the book. Um, but anyway, I went, I went, I was in Pyong, uh, Pyongyang and they'd taken us very guardedly around, showed us all around um, North Korea. Um, a, quite a funny story was we, we went over to the other side of the country to a museum and then this chap came to me and he said, today you're going to meet the honorable leader. I said, oh good. And so I'm thinking, really? You don't get to meet this guy. And then he says, you're going to meet his father and his grandfather. I thought, goodness gracious, they're dead. <laughs> so they took us into this room. They said, when you go in the room, you walk to the front. You don't talk. You bow at the front and then walk backwards out. We went into this room. And it's the hardest thing I have ever had to do because inside I wanted to laugh so badly, but I couldn't. There were three waxwork models of the leaders at the front on a piece of astroturf, and we had to walk up. They bowed, I didn't, and then we walked back out, and I was really biting my tongue because I, it was so hard. Anyway, at the end of the week, I used to play football, I love football, I love coaching football um, when I was younger. Um, I heard a whistle, we was in the, in the um, hotel, I heard this whistle, so naturally got gravitated to where the whistle was, saw a, a, a girls, I think under 12 girls playing each other, and so I was watching this, quite interesting, and uh, one team was really thrashing the other team. I think by half time it was 4-0, um, but I could see, in their identity in the team, they're all in the wrong position. So there was a girl that spoke English. I gathered them all around, and I said, look, what he got the little girl in goal for? The ball keeps going over the head. She needs to go out on the wing. The tall girl who's playing in midfield needs to come in goal, and then that big girl up front, she's quite, she's got brutal tackle. Let's bring her back to the fence, and the quick girl put her up front, and, blah, blah, blah. and we moved them all around, shuffled the pack. 
And they said, but we're 4-0 down. I said, you can win 5-4. You believe it. You win. I gave them the team talk. They went out and they won 5-4. <laughs> it's because they were in the wrong positions. And their identities were wrong. You can't have a little goalkeeper. You've got to have a tall goalkeeper. So anyway, really it was teaching you know, around where our identity is in team. And they said, can you come back on Tuesday? We've got another game. I said, sorry, I'm leaving tomorrow. Um, but i never forgotten it because it was so important. When you're out of position, you're miserable. And the team's miserable. When you get everybody put in the right places, you flow and you work. Our heart was always, I mean, Jackie Pullinger, um, we used to spend, started when I first went into China, I used to have to go through Hong Kong. I'd spend time with Jackie. I loved it. I don't understand why anybody else didn't love it. I used to sit with the, the ex-triad members. I remember the first time being in a room with a hundred ex-triad members. They got ears cut off and fingers missing and tattoos and scars and like and these guys are all worshipping Jesus like you've never ever heard or seen before it's electric it's absolutely electric these <coughs> incredible men and um, <coughs> Jackie would come in and they'd be a bit slouched and worship would die down and Jackie would say you dance in the bars, you dance in the discos, now you dance for Jesus. And they'd all just start dancing. Amazing the, the, the effect that she had on My bit was really, I loved to afterwards sit on the side of the mountain, drink tea and listen to these guys' stories. Their stories were phenomenal. And I remember Jackie coming and putting her hand on my shoulder once. She said, will you always come back? You see, I get lots of girls, I get lots of young men, but I don't get fathers. These guys need fathers. They need people that they can talk to and, and that will listen to them. And, and so I always did. I always went through and I always met. And Jackie and I became great friends. And, and when she went through tough times, I'd just listen and vice versa. And when John died, she'd come up to live with us for a while. But the thing that Jackie taught us was to have eyes for the poor. And I think... It impacted me, but it impacted Liz far more. And so while I was doing a lot of work with the children, Elizabeth was doing amazing work on the streets in China with some of the poor. And she wanted to just share one story about a boy called Joe. Um, yeah, just as Robert's been talking, I just feel prompted to, to say something. We were um, talking about our kids the other day and um, someone mentioned animals, and I remembered when they were really little, when we were in China, um, they would start to bring home um, kittens, and because they saw sort of um, animals that weren't taken care of. And I, as a mother, I loved that. We, we had animals brought home, rabbits that would have been eaten, and um, puppies and things. And I loved that because I said, as children, what they could do was rescue these animals. But I told them, when you're older, you will rescue people. And, and sometimes we have to open our eyes to things that God... And, and allow then God to use what is in front of us and, and translate it 
for those and say, this, this is God. This, this is the spirit of the Father. Um, and, and also, um, I just feel like, you know, that scripture where God says, unless I turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And he said that. That was the last thing he said in the Old Testament. And it was the first thing that he said in the two New Testament after 400 years. Unless I turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And there's a mystery in that. Um, and so it's important. What, what, what we're doing with families and fathers and children is is something miraculous that God wants. This is not us. We're very ordinary, but God is moving. But anyway, I um, I was it was early in the morning in Beijing, and um, we had a, a mini bus that we used for some of the things we had to do, going out to the families and different things. And I was in the mini bus, and I looked across. It was a McDonald's, and I could see this child, young boy, um, at the side of McDonald's. And so um, I had a driver. I didn't like driving in China. I found that difficult. So um, he, I said, um, we trained, we, we talked to him. We'd actually baptized him in our home in the bath. Uh, he'd become a Christian. He knew that we, what we were doing there. And I said, I just pointed to the young lad and I said, we need to go see what's going on there. So we drove into McDonald's. We got out and we went over and I just said, do, do you want some food? And he, he said, yeah, and um, we took him in, and he'd got shoes that didn't fit his feet. Um, they were just flopping around on his feet, and he'd got a pair of trousers that were tight, tied with, a, with um, a belt, but you could see these great big baggy, almost like men's pants underneath. He was just all over the place. His hair was matted, and... Um, so we took him in and we said, what do you want? And um, he said, burger and chips. And I noticed he um, wrapped up the burger when we gave it to him really carefully and put it in his pocket. And then he started to eat the chips. And I thought, yeah, he's used to being hungry. He's saving his food. He doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. Anyway, I said, we, we generally would say so. I, but I knew he was young. And I knew if I took him home, I couldn't let him go. You know, you, uh, with adults, when you help adults, you, there's a process. You can give them train tickets. You can find out where their village was, why they were there, their story. But with a child, it, it was a bit different. And so I knew when I took Joe, we called him Joe. I'd got Joel and Joshua with the two boys in the house. And so we called him Joe. And um, so I took him home and said, you know, do you want, do you want a bath? Do you want some, some um, a sleep and, and things? And... And he came back. And what had happened was that he'd run away from home. Um, he'd managed to get on a train free of charge. And then he'd got involved with a gang. And he was a very bright little boy. And the gang had bullied him badly. And so he'd separated himself from the gang in Beijing and um, was trying to survive by himself. So I took him home and um, uh, started to get to know him a little bit. And... Um, but he was very angry. He wanted to stay with us, but he was very angry. And he would always be up at night and asleep during the day. And um, he would get really upset about things and smash things and break things. And at night, I'd hear noises and he'd broken all the lights in the house. And um, But he also would take the children's Lego and make amazing things with the Lego. And... Um, 
yeah, mess the computer up. We'd got a computer in the house, and he'd he'd mess the computer out, up. And um, but anyway, uh, one one day um, he we'd ask him things, and he'd tell us things that we just thought that's not that doesn't fit together. We don't know what he's he's doing. And then it was coming up to Christmas. He's been with us about five months, and it was coming up to Christmas, and. Um, we knew we weren't getting the right things out of him, and the the children. Um, we all decided to um, get him something special, a present. Um, and we'd I'd say to him, you know, you know, the reason that you're with us is because of Jesus. And he'd put his hands over his head, ears, and shake his head and say, No, no, no. And I'd say, Yeah, you're here because of Jesus. Um, Anyway, this, this Christmas we decided to all get him something that was special to him. So one of the children bought him fluorescent stars that he could stick on the ceiling in his bedroom. And we bought him armbands because he couldn't swim. Um, he told us he was 10 years old. And we bought him his own hat and scarf and gloves and just things that were very special. He'd used to be in cold, things that were very unique to him. And that morning we just... We just sat around him and um, gave him these presents one after another. And um, he just sort of looked at us and slowly opened these presents that were all unique as our six kids gave him each a gift. And he just, we'd never seen him cry, never seen any emotion, really deep emotion from him. But as he opened these unique gifts to him, he just started to weep, didn't he? And he wept for ages, and um, then he said, I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> and so he told us this story, and um, really we knew that um, God had opened his heart. And he hadn't felt loved until that point. At that point, then he felt loved. Um, so as we gave him these, these things, and he told us his story um, that, why he'd run away from home and um and that morning um he received Jesus as his lord and savior and he was totally transformed and um then we were able to find out where he'd come from a very bright boy we contacted the school that he had been in, in as a, a child he was actually 13 he wasn't 10 he was 13 um and we contacted the school, and then the school knew his parents, his mother, and um, we arranged for his mother to come to Beijing and stay with us, and he led his mother to the Lord. So she came down, he met, led his mother to the Lord. There was huge restoration and healing, um, and then he went back to his family, and um, yeah, that that situation was totally restored and renewed. And I think that's, ju that's just the way the Lord wanted to work. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with Joe is we heard from him. And I think it's something about when you serve and invest in people. He wanted to come back and see us, and we said no. No, you've got your mum now. You're, you're, you're back where you're meant to be. And so... Um, I, you know, we just felt that was really important that we are there to invest in their lives and to the reunification with his mother was very important. And, uh, you know, what he had was richness in that. 
his father had um, uh, left his mother and he went with his father but his father kicked him out and actually took him to the train station and told him you're no longer wanted. He returned and knocked on the door and they said go away, you're, you're not welcome here. And that's where he started this journey until Liz found him and uh, what a privilege, you know. It's in the book, but uh, and you, there's a bit of burning. You know, you'd love to. I'd love to see where Joe is, and there's a bit about this story, um, because. But you know, we'll see him in heaven. It's something we're really looking forward to seeing Joe in heaven and see what happened in his life. This guy is quite an interesting one because when we went to China, um, we stopped in Singapore. Um, we were allowed to go somewhere for preparation. We were in Singapore for three or four months. And every morning, this very shy, timid man, very young man, used to pick us up and take us to church. He'd bring a minibus and get all our kids in. He encouraged the kids. It was wonderful. Our kids all loved him. And so when I went back to Singapore two or three um, weeks back, um, I, I sought him out, Bobby, his name. And um, apparently, you know, when this pastor went to prison, they asked all the elders and leaders who all stood in a line who was going to step forward to take on the church. Well, no one stepped forward. In fact, everyone stepped back apart from Bobby, who stood still. And he's now the lead elder of a church of 30,000 people. But it all started for me as a young, timid man who faith three every Sunday morning used to pick our family up and take us to church. And after the photograph was taken, if you understand the prophecy and the words in our life, I noticed the stars. And I just thought, wow, it's God's confirmation. I don't know how, are we on finish time? I'm just going to um, quickly share something that we shared this morning, which I've actually downloaded now. Um, just bear with me for a minute. Okay, and this is about the creativity of God. Creativity expert Sir Ken Robinson challenges the way we educate our children. He champions a radical rethink of our school system to cultivate creativity and acknowledge multiple types of intelligence. He tells the story of a little eight-year-old girl called Gillian who was struggling at school in the 1930s. They thought she had a learning disorder and took her to a specialist. He, rather than exclude and label her, told her mother to take her to a dance school as she needs to move to think. Gillian auditioned for the Royal Ballet, had a wonderful career, met Andrew Lloyd Webber, and eventually formed her own company, Gillian Lynn Dance Company. She produced Cats, Phantom of the Opera, and now is a multi-millionaire who has given pleasure to millions. When we think of names of people, give God. Never forget, creative usually comes to mind. Theologians tell us that God's most fundamental relationship with the cosmos is as its continual creator and sustainer. God is always creating. We do call God, after all, the creator. We have long discussed what it really means to be made in his image and the ability to create and be creative is certainly an expression of him in us. Our creativity 
is authored by him and comes from his hand. It is one of the most important ways that we can imitate him. When we create, we are simply acting out the purpose for which he formed us. He is extending his creativity through us. The specialist that encouraged Julian empathized with the creative side of her little life and changed its course. And I just want to leave that with you today. As you think of all the little stories we had of the different people's identity and creativity. Never, never forget creativity in our children. Thank you.